This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Kauai has managed to keep its COVID cases in the double digits. Its small population makes it more manageable in some ways, but its remote, remoteness has made it a challenge in other ways. Case in point, the Love Has One religious cult that uh, tried to relocate there. It was met with community pushback, particularly after its leader claimed to be a reincarnation of Madame Pele. Mayor Kawakami says the community can't let its guard down if it wants to keep its COVID cases down. On Kauai, we don't have the, the luxury of being able to um, be too reactive because things can blow up very quickly. Of course, we do have the smallest population, so that really helps out. We've just had to make some very tough decisions that you know a lot of people had to make some sacrifices for, but our top priority when we said it was to maintain the health and safety as well as uh, lead the economic recovery as we sort of learn to, to coexist with this you know, I know Mayor uh, Victorino, you know, had a, a bit of advice just saying, you know, I know there's a lot of, you know, finger pointing going around, uh, you know, the, the blame game at this point as we see the numbers spike in these various counties. Uh, you know, he was saying, look, we've just got to pull together and, and get and get through this, but pull together. Yeah, he couldn't have spoke um, truer words, you know, where, um, you know, in a time of crisis, teamwork is critical. And in order to have good team, you have to have trust. And the foundation of trust is having good, effective leadership up and down the ladder. So I think as we move along, you know, the communication has improved and will continue to improve. And that in and of itself should improve the trust, not just with the team, but with the general public as well. I mean, that, that's key to get compliance is to have our people put their trust in government that we're making the very best decisions on everyone's behalf. And so the leadership change that occurred at the state level, it is unfortunate, but to look at a silver lining, it gives the state and the counties this very narrow window of opportunity to relook at how we do things and make adjustments and changes. If we fall back to the the same rhythm of um, not being effective communicators, uh, you know, it, it's going to be hard to see uh, any improvement no matter who's in those key positions. So I look forward to it. We have a great working relationship across the mayors and up and down the, the chain of command as well. I know Mayor Kim wholeheartedly gave his support to the uh, health department uh, division there on the Big Island. And I don't know how you feel if you think you've got enough contact tracers and investigators for your numbers and, and, and the capacity in case, you know, this thing does take off. We do. I have the full faith in our Koi District Health Office. In fact, I take the health department as a resource that's being available to the governor and the mayors. And so even at the state level, we've been able to take the information that they gave us and make some key decisions and not wait on anything. But as far as the contact tracers, we, we do have the assurances from our district health officer, Dr. Janet Behrman, that we do have enough contact tracers. But, you know, contact tracing, testing are just um, part they're just a, a, a part of the toolbox. I think um, what happens is, you know, you start hearing these phrases like contact tracing and search testing, and people will tend to get hung up that this is a silver bullet, but it doesn't work that way. The holy grail is prevention. That means just preventing people from get, getting sick, and that's where the most important components as far as testing, and then not only the testing, but the compliance with everyone using a mask to keep germs to themselves, uh, just washing their hands and avoid large gatherings come into place because if you have significant community spread, there, there, it's going to be hard for any community to have enough contact tracers to be able to move as quick as this virus moves. And that's why the contact tracing component is at the front end, and we try to avoid that sort of community spread where you have clusters throughout the island because at that point, you know, you just have uh, contact tracers burnt out and uh, getting criticized when uh, the reality is that it's very hard for them to do their job at that point. DLNR, I think, is considering reopening uh, Polihale State Park, and there was a large gathering back in July. There were large gatherings from the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, those are some of the areas where when we had our stay-home order and we had very strict rules against gathering, these are places where people would, would try to go to, to to sort of 
get around uh, some some of the compliance that we've been asking for the community. So, you know, DLNR can go ahead and open. Um, I would say that you know people just gotta understand that there's that there's rules, and it does require some sacrifice if they want to keep things open, but. DLNR doesn't have the resources to be able to sort of monitor every single open space that they're trying to keep open for the public. If it's going to stay open, it's, it's, it's going to be up to us to be doing the right things, to enjoy the outdoors in a responsible manner. And if it closes down, it, it's going to be because of us. So we have to take accountability, and at times we need to take a look in the mirror. And you had a situation there oh, a little more than a week ago uh, where you had to intervene, the cult group from C- Colorado, and a, a problem with some of the community members there. Uh, talk about that. You know, we don't have any problems with uh, the different belief systems. You know, um, the first thing I did when I came in as mayor is say, hey, you know, this National Day of Prayer, we're going to bring in all, all the groups. We're going to bring in Christian groups, and we're going to bring in Buddhists, Hindus, Jewish communities. Uh, everybody under the sun can put their differences aside for one day to show the the people and show the world that we can coexist. And so, you know, we we have you know we have constitutional rights as far as freedom of religion. What became a problem is this particular group was very aggressive. They were very disrespectful right off the bat. And because of this, you know, our community out on the North Shore was already sort of um, going through the aftermath of of the floods of 2018, Hurricane Lane and that aftermath. Um, And now with the pandemic, there's a level of anxiety and fear. And to have an aggressive group come in, and rightfully so, I mean, they they have a right to, to come in, they quarantine. They were renting, you know, a house. But the community also has a right to peacefully assemble and express their thoughts, and they did. And we don't know what happened over the night. We're not pointing fingers at any particular person or group because there is no evidence up until this point. But there was property damage. And so as mayor, all I did was go to both groups, to the local residents in Wainiha. I had to remind them that until it becomes unlawful, they have a right to peacefully assemble until it becomes uh, unpeaceful. And then we're just going to come and put an end to it because there are rules. You know, to the other group, the Love Has Won organization, I very respectfully uh, went up and introduced myself. And I just said that this sort of welcoming committee is sort of what you can expect to be faced with across the island and in fact because you folks made such a first impression i would you know i would go out on a limb to say that you could probably expect this type of response across the state of hawaii especially when you claim to be a, a sacred deity in our culture it's going to hit a nerve and so i said these officers are here to make sure everyone is safe of course You know, we can't have officers out here 24 hours a day, and I just want to make sure everybody is safe. And that was the gist of the message. And the very next day, they had decided that their stay on Kauai was coming down to a a wind-down period. And so they peacefully departed, of course, with the assistance of my managing director, Mike Dehealy, KPD, and a number of other uh, partners that came together to make sure that they were safe and that they had their belongings intact and that they were able to catch a flight out. Are you concerned, you know, this is making, you know, national headlines and there could be some backlash? No. I mean, this type of job I have, uh, half of the people are going to be satisfied. Uh, half of the people are not going to be satisfied. And that's sort of when I know uh, I'm just right. You know, it's like Goldilocks. The porridge is too hot. The porridge is too cold. The porridge is just right. So, I mean, as far as backlash, no, I just got to do what I think is the right thing to do to be able to keep the peace and make sure people are safe. So, you know, it is what it is. Okay. And there were no arrests on either side with, with Madame Pelle's uh, group or? No, yeah. Madame okay. Pelle. <laughs> nah, there, there weren't any arrests. And, and that's what we were trying to avoid is, is having a situation where arrests needed to be made or uh, ultimately the, the worst case scenario is if somebody got hurt because there's kids. 
you know, that was my biggest concern is that there were kids in the surrounding area on both ends, from what I understand. So I think we made the best out of a challenging situation. And, you know, it's just another day in the life of a mayor dealing with a pandemic cults and what's next. And then uh, I know there's been lots of talk about the resort bubbles. Anything you can share with us on that front? The thing that people need to understand is that, you know, for, for months, the safe travel plan as far as pre-testing was slated to get the green light first in August, and then it got pushed back. And now I think the governor and the state is looking at October. But there, there's a level of uncertainty. And so very quickly after the delay in August, we started taking a look at contingency plans because we realized that a lot of the operations didn't have contingency plan plans in place if, if plan A fell through. So some of the big components of the resort bubble is one, it's not mandatory. These are options available for resorts that want to participate, that have a level of confidence that they can keep their associates safe, they can keep their guests safe, and then the island safe as well. Two, you know, this resort bubble concept will help aid law enforcement because right now, as of today, I'm not sure how many people are under uh, quarantine uh, monitoring, but last week it was up to about 1,700, close to 1,800 individuals that our law enforcement, National Guard, and Koi Visitors Bureau has to go and, and do wellness checks to make sure that they're complying with quarantine. So from a law enforcement perspective, it's easier to be able to uh, manage the quarantine monitoring and enforcement if there are locations that are identified. And uh, as far as quarantine violators, a lot of it is because they're stuck in a room for 14 days, and that is going to pull some individuals in the direction of taking a chance. So this is a go-between. This is sort of a stopgap if, if the travel day gets pushed back again. We don't have the resources to be able to fill the gaps for all of the people that are unemployed indefinitely. So at some point, there needs to be a slow stage reopening of the visitor industry because uh, everybody is being impacted, not just the visitor industry. We're talking about food service industries. We're talking about every other trickle-down mom and pop that has lost a tremendous amount of customer count. So this, this is sort of a stopgap plan B. We have a team specifically formulated to work on the resort bubble and interface with the resorts themselves. So at the last check, there were five that felt that they had good systems in place to uh, ensure employee safety, guest safety, and then make sure that people are able to to stay on property. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as the names, I wouldn't want to uh, misspeak, but I, I... I would just say that there are a small group of resorts that have worked um, to make sure that they have the process and the system in place to ensure safety on all levels. That was Koi Mayor Derek Kawakami talking to us about managing the Garden Isle during this pandemic, everything from resort bubbles to religious cults and just getting people to stay home and stay safe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kona Historical Society. From the collection, a new program series online the last Wednesday of each month features stories of Kona and highlights objects from historical sites and archives. KonaHistorical.org People living in chronic pain are often looking for a way to decrease their discomfort in ways that don't require more prescription medications. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about how to increase comfort and reduce pain. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin September 21st. More by searching Osher Hawaii. 
On our reality check today, our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat have a story about one of the veterans who died as a result of the cluster of COVID-19 cases in a senior Hilo long-term care facility. Reporter Kevin Dayton joins us today. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. Nice to be with you. You know, this story is really kind of unfolding in your backyard. It really is. Uh, when when uh, I started working on this story, there had been 10 deaths at uh, Okutsu Veterans Care Home, and by the time I was finished, there had been a dozen. Um, and we're all hoping that it stops there, please. Now, uh, I understand that the mayor uh, held a news conference this weekend about, you know, the latest review he of did. the facility. When, yeah, when, when you talk to Harry, it, it, it's a, he's very emotional about it. Um, uh, these are the only deaths that the island has had so far, at least as far as I know. And, and I think he said publicly that he had been hoping to get out of the pandemic with no deaths on the big island from COVID-19. Obviously, that didn't didn't work out, and uh, and, the, and the care home has been sort of the epicenter of the fatalities uh, and continues to be so. And you uh, put a face to one of the dozen people there. Uh, talk about um, Melvin Tomita. Well, Melvin Tomita was, uh, by all accounts, a real character. Um, he uh, was a one who loved to talk story and, and to joke around, uh, especially with uh, the boys at uh, Station 34, which is the, the firefighter station in Hawaii Kai. Um, he was a veteran of Vietnam and won the Bronze Star there, um, but never told his family what he wanted for. Um, and so he had that, um, I guess, that special reserve that, that sometimes veterans have. He didn't want to talk about his wartime experiences, but in fact, it must, been, it must have been wrenching because he was with the 100th Battalion, 442nd, and which at the time was a reserve unit, and they were activated in 1968 and shipped off to Vietnam. Well, at the time, he was 35 years old with four kids, and you can really imagine what a, what a, you know, how frightening that must have been both for the family and for him to go off to a combat zone at that age. And in your story, you had mentioned that he had been tested for COVID like four times. Tested four times and came back negative each time. And because of that, they housed him on the second floor of the Okutsu facility. Um, the, the first floor has been used as sort of the quarantine for the folks who test positive. And the second floor was the site for the folks who have been tested clean so far. Um, but when he began um, running a high fever uh, the night of September 3rd, um, they checked him into Hilo Medical Center. And Hilo has one of those rapid testing kits and he tested positive at Hilo, and they then immediately uh, separated him from the, uh, obviously they got a section of the emergency room at the ER um, for folks who test positive for COVID, and they placed him there. Um, his daughter came to see him, and um, she wasn't allowed into the room, and so she ended up in his final hours texting him, texting the nurse things to say to him in his ear um, so that he would have that, hopefully, have that feeling of, of some family involvement uh, in his final hours. And I know it's hard uh, because you can't be there in the room with your loved one at the very end. Uh, and I, I know with this review of the Avalon uh, home, the veterans' home, that there's a report that was being compiled. I think it's due. Is it due out today? Uh, I'm actually not clear on that. I'd have to defer to you on that. Um, the, the, I know that there's a whole lot of people looking at Avalon. The, the Veterans Administration has had a crew here um, inspecting, and also the HAIMA, uh, Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, has had specialists, or at least one and, and possibly more, who have been going through the facility. Um, exactly when they were going to produce their report, that much I'm not clear on. Um, I know that uh, Mayor Harry Kim had had some discussions with them, and they did find some shortcomings at the facility specifically uh, the, the coming and going of staff, that there was a sense that there needed to be greater oversight and supervision of the movement of people in and out of the facility. Yeah, I think even the mayor called, I think, for the administration to be removed as a result of it. I, I believe there are a couple other Avalon facilities here on Oahu uh, where there have been fatalities. So I, I guess we'll just have to wait and uh, sit tight and see when this report comes out and see what it has to say. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. All right. Thanks so much, Kevin. That Take was care. reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org.
back with the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. Kalalea in Olelo, Hawaii, it means prominent and protruding, and figuratively as haughty or important. It can also refer to the dorsal fin of a shark above the water. But we're referring to the landmark on the Anahola Mountain Range on Kauai. It's been called Mano, referring to the shark-like dorsal fin, but it's also been called Kong Mountain because it resembles the silhouette of a monstrous gorilla. Because of its distinct features, it can be spotted in several films, including Tropic Thunder, Jurassic Park, and yes, King Kong, the 1976 version. Two Harrison Ford films feature the mountain, most famously the opening sequence of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the Garden Isle stood in for the Peruvian jungles. As archaeologist Indiana Jones, he steals an ancient gold artifact for arguably benign reasons and escapes a booby-trapped temple only to be foiled by a rival. But what is the name of the other Harrison Ford movie that features Kalalea? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer, the first one to get it right. It's a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. It is no secret that the Honolulu Police Department's ranks have thinned. HPD has about a 10% vacancy, and those hundreds of jobs have drawn very high interest from off of Oahu's shores. Besides the regular beat jobs, the department's communications division has openings for those interested in the radio dispatch side. We talked to HPD recruiter Tori Sakiris and Thalia Burns about what's driving the mainland interest in these local jobs and how much of the recruiting effort has gone online. Burns has been with HPD for close to 40 years, and Officer Securis worked as a dispatcher on the mainland before returning home to Hawaii some seven years ago. We're doing virtual info sessions, so previously if you wanted to learn about our process, um, you would just have to use the resources online or, or call in. Uh, now we are doing um, online virtual info sessions so that people from out of state or off island can log on and do a screen share and talk to recruiters live, learn about the process. We've also consolidated the trips. Uh, previously, uh, it used to take about five trips to go through our process uh, to become a police recruit if you didn't live here, which can be very expensive. And especially right now with the COVID restrictions, that's not reasonable or realistic, right? So we've narrowed that down to two trips now uh, where the processing is consolidated and you kind of do multiple events in one day. But like I said earlier, we've postponed that until the 14-day quarantine restriction either changes or there's a, some sort of exemption that's applied. We're also looking into possibly doing recruiting off-island to kind of start funneling in those 900-plus numbers of people that are expressing interest in our department. That's a high amount, isn't it, 900? Yes, it is a high amount. Have we ever seen that? I mean, usually we have other counties, you know, King County, you know, folks like that who come and recruit our officers. Right now, that number is high because it's been building up since March. We haven't been able to test people since March, really, that don't live here because of that quarantine. So the interest is there. It's just a matter of keeping that funnel flowing. And that's why that number is so high now, because that exemption that was like tentatively scheduled for August got pushed back to September and now October, and now they're still discussing it. So 
until we either come up with some sort of pre-test clearance where they don't need to quarantine, like the governor was mentioning, or we send our people up to the mainland to start clearing, uh, like releasing the tension on this funnel. Yeah, that's why the numbers are so high. And share with our listeners, like, you know, what is the average pay for uh, uh, a new recruit? So police recruit uh, starts at a salary of just about $72,000 a year. And that's base salary plus a differential pay that officers get. And so it's a really good starting salary. I mean, it's gone up significantly over the past 10 years just with step increases and, you know, the union shopo pay negotiations and stuff. So good starting salary. After the one year of training, they go up and they, I think it's about a $2,000 or $2,500 increase. And then from there, they get a um, either city step movement every three to four years and then whatever the union negotiates as well. Dahlia, talk about these positions. Most folks know them as radio dispatchers. You've got a new a title. So what's the snapshot? What's the vacancy rate there? So the snapshot on that is we have, we've separated our positions. So we have police communications officers one, and they come in and they do strictly call-taking duties and data entry type duties. Then if at some point they desire to advance, they can go to a uh, police communications officer too. And that incorporates call taking and police dispatching on the radio. And so right now we have a a vacancy rate for our PCO1s of 11 and then PCO2 we have 17 vacancies. So I would say that we're about a fourth of our staffing uh, below what we would want um, but that's kind of what we're doing now with regard to trying to help with the recruitment because in the past we've lost people where they could not, uh, they could do call taking duties, but then when it came to the radio, it just got a little bit too difficult for them. And so we're hoping by changing how we do business that we would um, attract more people. We have our own in-house academy, and so we have a a training staff that will provide them classroom training, and then once they complete their classroom training, they're put out on the watch to do on-the-job training. And so for the new classification for our communications officer, one, it's six months of training. We're accepting applications on a continuous basis so they can apply anytime at our website, uh, joinhonolulupd.org. And that's for both positions, the police recruit or the police communications officer. Specifically for this police communications officer position, uh, once they apply online within one week, if they meet the minimum qualifications for the job, which is a high school diploma or a GED, and one year of public work experience. So any sort of work experience that involves public contact, whether it's answering questions to the public, relaying um, interpretation of policies, procedures, but it just has to be something about dealing with the public. So retail would qualify. It cannot really be your first job because you're coming into this high-stress environment, but it's also very rewarding. So once you meet those minimum qualifications, you'll get an invitation to take an online performance test. It's a job job simulation test where it's testing your uh, typing speed, your typing accuracy. You need to be able to at least type 35 words per minute accurately. It kind of runs you through sample 911 calls through your headset or your speakers, and you have to input information into a form. And it's going to track your speed and accuracy with that. There's other areas such as cross-referencing, memorization, and map reading. Uh, but there's nothing really you can study. It's just testing your, your skills and your abilities at that point. So for someone that passes that test, uh, within one business day, they'll move right on into our background investigation phase. So it's a very quick process. It can take as little as three months to clear everything. And for a police department or a job in law enforcement, it's very quick. Previously, our processing was about 12 to 18 months for any position with the department. So after that background investigation phase, they do a personal history statement where they fill out an online form about their life history. Um, A background investigation is conducted, and then they do a psychological evaluation and a polygraph, so a lie detector. And you mentioned that, you know, these are high-stress jobs, but a lot of people thrive on that, you know, high-stress energy. Yes, that's true. Um, Sal, you can talk more about that. So, so yes, so it's very high stress. um, And our people, you know, that's one thing that you have to be able to um, handle. You have to be able to be somewhat uh, empathetic for the people that's calling in and yet still maintain your composure and, you know, try to retrieve all of the information. So it can be stressful. Um, 
there are also rewarding moments knowing that you you made somebody's day you changed their life for for that whatever crisis they had so it goes both ways for me personally i've been here almost 37 years and you know it's been both stressful and rewarding at the same time and so you know it's a job that you don't take lightly once you're here i think you stay here and we have people that are here 40 years and so there's something in it for them and it's helping people and that's what you really sign up for is to make a difference in someone else's life and it is about helping people i don't think that there's another job like it really we have to be able to to separate ourselves we have to be able to be compassionate and be empathetic at the same time but yet we have a job to do and we do it and later on you know there are times when we have to take a break talk with our supervisors and say you know i just need a moment this call was really hard for me or this incident on the radio uh, was very difficult for me and then we talk them through and you know we bring in peer support if they need it and so we have mechanisms within hpd that will help our people too on those cases that really impact them so that they know that what they did was the best they could do at that particular moment because we make life and death decisions every single day for every single call that we pick up and so we never know what's going to be on that next call and we approach each call in that same fashion and we're here talking on 9-11 you know and and uh you know we do have unsung heroes too in the communication center and, you know, the first responders out on the field depend on our people to make sure that they know where they are, to send them to the cases, to send them to the right addresses. They depend. We're kind of like their lifeline as well. And so our people here in the comp center are really unsung heroes as well. And just like those first responders in 9-11, same thing. You know, we feel the impact that they feel. And we're behind the scenes, but we feel it as well. If you look at how the system is set up with someone needing help, they truly are the first responders. They're the first people that come in contact with uh, the caller or the general public to request police fire or even medical assistance, right? Officers on the road wouldn't know where to go or what's needed without the dispatchers or the communications officers. So uh, it, it is true how they're saying, like, they're the heroes behind the badge. They're the true first responders. A lot of the traits that Thalia was mentioning, a lot of these traits are the same thing that's needed for recruits or police officers. So both fields kind of have the same drive. It's just a matter of sometimes people might not want to be out there in the street. What's the best thing? I don't know. What do you love about your job? What I love about the job is that every day is a new day. Um, And every day I have a chance to make uh, a difference for someone. And I don't think that I would still be here if I didn't have that goal at the forefront. You know, whether it's working on the floor, answering the phones, or helping somebody behind the scenes because, you know, maybe they um, are having a difficult day. And as a supervisor, I'm, I have to be responsible for that to make sure that I keep an eye on our, my people as well. You know, if, if they're struggling with something, I need to be there for them as well. So from a supervisory perspective, I think I wear two hats. One, you know, if I'm helping people on the call. Two, if I'm helping my, my person sitting behind that telephone as well. So, or at the radio. And so it's been exciting. I love it. I'm not sure, you know, you know, in the horizon where my retirement will be, but it will be somewhere down the road. Um, I'm not quite ready yet. And, and there's a lot, lot of people out there that I know that would be good people that could do this job. But the first thing they have to have is the want to help, help people. Uh, so for me, it's the opportunity to make change and make a difference. And now that's such a generic answer that we hear from applicants that are trying to become police recruits too. I want to serve my community. I want to make a change. But once you get into the department, there's so many different things and everyone has their own drive, right? So say some people want to work with kids and maybe you go into a division that deals with juveniles or activities league. Um, Other people might have history of domestic uh, violence or something along those lines and you want to go into that area. For me, particularly, I was a dispatcher before becoming a uh, police recruit in the mainland. And part of my drive to get on the other side of the radio was I was uh, encountering officers that really I didn't feel should be officers. They weren't doing it for the right reasons. And in my head, the only way I thought I could change that was becoming an officer and being that change that you want to see in the community, right? Especially right now with all the volatility in the mainland nationwide, 
uh, just the opinion of policing and the community policing relationship. The only way stuff like that's going to change is if good people sign up and become officers. And it's not going to fix itself on its own. So the people that don't like it have to be that change. So with that said, coming to this department, uh, moving back home and joining uh, HPD was um, wanting to be a positive reflection of what policing and that community policing relationship could be. Every division provides its own opportunities for self-reward, right? Uh, Being in recruitment, um, we're kind of being that funnel or that guide for potential recruits. So making sure we're hiring the best of the best and people that want to do it for the right reason. Right now, there's so much uncertainty, especially here in Hawaii with the economy and um, with the challenges COVID has placed on not only the economy, but just you know, the ability to survive right, without income or benefits or losing, position, or losing your job or being laid off, temporary furloughs, whatnot. This is an essential position, both the police recruit and the police communications officer, so these jobs aren't going anywhere. That was HPD's Officer Tori Securis and Communications Supervisor Thalia Burns talking about the hundreds of job openings in the Honolulu Police Department. For links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Naturopathic Retreat on Hawaii Island, working with individuals to help normalize blood sugar, blood pressure, and other chronic conditions without pharmaceutical drugs. HawaiiNaturopathicRetreat.com. With the pandemic apt to keep people away from the polls in November, what does a delay in tabulating really pretend? The idea that we may not know the results of the election until December are probably a bit apocalyptic. Making sense of the alarm bells on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Starting this evening at 7, following The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Nico's Kailua Restaurant and Bar near Aikahi Shopping Center, offering takeout lunch and dinner with curbside pickup, open daily. Nikoskailua.com. Kalalea on Kauai's Anahola mountain range has a distinct silhouette that some say looks like King Kong. The cinematic backdrop is apt as it's appeared in several motion pictures like The Time Machine and Honeymoon in Vegas. It's the, uh, in the background in Jurassic Park, but it appeared in another Steven Spielberg blockbuster, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That film's protagonist, Indiana Jones, was famously played by Harrison Ford. The actor would return to the island for a 1998 movie where he starred opposite and Heche. Um, the plot, well, after their plane crashes uh, on a de- deserted tropical isle, a grouchy charter pilot and a vacationing fashion editor prove that opposites attract. That movie was six days, seven nights, and that was the correct answer to our quiz. We had lots of lots of calls, but Joel, by Aya, you had the fastest fingers. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Imagine a vast system of forestry connecting through Hawaii's urban sectors from Mauka to Makai. It's an ambitious goal, but it's one that Paul Aranaga and Travis Idle are working to realize. They believe that even if a fraction of the island's residents take an active interest in the cultivation of endemic plants, the state of conservation in Hawaii would be in a much better place. They recently spoke to our producer, Harrison Patino, about their project, Go Native, Growing a Native Hawaiian Urban Forest. We begin with Travis. Hawaii Forest Institute has a long history of working on rural and natural forests and the restoration of both dry forests and music or wetter forests as well. But we started getting into looking at um, trying to reach the public more broadly, and so we had a couple of more urban forestry-type projects, both at the zoo on the Big Island outside of Hilo, 
the Panaeva Zoo, and then also at the Honolulu Zoo. And so we really began to shift some of our attention and focus with the success of those projects to really trying to connect more with urban forestry and people where, you know, where people actually live. And so that's kind of where this idea to do this broader effort for focusing on urban forestry and including native plants within urban ecosystems came from. So the Go Native idea kind of, kind of came from that sort of history Really, Paul can tell you a lot more about um, you know that project specifically. For me personally, it sort of started because I just became puzzled as to just walking around neighborhoods in in Honolulu as to why more people aren't growing native plants. Because typically, you might see one or two yards with a few native plants growing, but generally speaking, I haven't seen a lot. So it seems like, in a sense part in the metaphor, but sort of low-hanging fruit to just encourage a lot more people, particularly in Honolulu, but statewide, to start growing more native plants because of, you know, some of the many benefits, not only to urban areas, but to the larger forest itself in more remote areas. The idea being that enough of a critical mass could be established that these urban forests could, in a way, connect or interconnect with more natural forests that are in more remote areas. Well, you're promoting this notion at a really interesting time because COVID has really made gardeners out of a lot of us. This seems like, you know, what might be the perfect moment to galvanize people's newfound or pre-existing green thumbs into fostering native plants. So how do people even get involved in this sort of thing? The main things that we are planning to do are to produce a series of videos and host them on YouTube. And we're working with Heidi Bornhorst, who's a very well-known in this area, horticulturist and arborist, certified arborist and has written a book about growing native plants. So she's, she's going to be featured in the videos. And, but the idea with the videos is to really make it really much easier for people to know how to grow native plants and to know which plant to grow where, given the microclimate they're living in, the soil conditions they have, and things like that. But the other thing we're planning to do as well is to create what I call a quick reference guide where people would be able to quickly refer to this guide and see, okay, I'm living here, so this plant will grow well here. And here's maybe even a step-by-step kind of way in which I can gradually transition my yard to native landscape. And these are the things I need to watch out for. Maybe this is roughly how much it would cost. These are the places I can go to get the plants. So really try to give people every all the information they would need. And then I guess the other major component besides providing information and kind of hand-holding in a way, is to really promote this to the general public, so, you know, residents, but also to businesses and people like landscape architects who are, you know, kind of a channel for getting far more native plants out into uh, yards everywhere. And also, I should say, landscaping in, in businesses, hotels, office buildings, etc. Well, Travis, it's an interesting point. Do you think there's been a sort of trepidation or a little bit of mystery in the average gardener here in terms of wanting to foster native plants or maybe even a little bit of fear of not doing it properly? Probably so. My, my guess is, unfortunately, a lot of the news that we get about our natural forests and native species always seems to be another pest, another disease, another challenge to maintaining these natural populations. And so they may think, well, you know, if I try to grow this locally or in my own yard, am I going to face the same kinds of challenges or issues? There's also reputations. You know, sometimes it's hard to come o- overcome a bad reputation for certain native plants. But, you know, on the flip side, there are a lot of native and uh, Hawaiian-introduced plants, or what we call canoe plants, that are quite common in urban areas. And I think people in, in many cases just aren't even aware of that. And so this project will help to make them more aware of what they are already seeing and say, yeah, you know, these trees, these plants are things that I can grow. I have seen them. And sure, this this should be a priority. I'm glad Travis brought up canoe plants because with the COVID situation and the economic dislocation that it's causing, I think now is a great time for people to start growing food plants. And a lot of the canoe plants, of course, are food plants, many of them being relatively easy to grow. So, you know, I think that's also an opportunity for a lot of people. The other thing I want to say is that the thing that I think is also interesting about this project is that restoration or conservation has tended to be something done in fairly remote areas. So they've been kind of far removed from people's everyday life. Whereas I think if we start to encourage more people to grow native plants, the whole idea of restoration and conservation will become much more personal for them and they'll 
feel like maybe even that they have a personal stake in it more so than they do now. Well, Hawaii seems like it has a particularly personal stake in this forest action plan that's associated with this project. It's said that our island's ecosystems are more dramatically and intricately connected than those on the continents. Can you explain that? The small size of our islands really means that ecosystems and places are connected. Just, you know, physical proximity is much closer. And, you know, the, the range of ecosystem types from the top of the mountains down to the ocean, you know, can occur within just a few miles on the islands. And so, you know, those connections are, are intimate. There's also dramatic changes happening, transitions. Uh, and, you know, and that's not just sort of the natural systems, but that interface between kind of places where people live and work and grow plants, as well as, you know, rural protected natural areas as well. So we have to be aware of not just the natural connections that occur, but the ones that we're involved in, all those interfaces. And so, as Paul mentioned earlier, the more we can plant natives within an urban area or within a human-dominated you know, area, the more we can strengthen those connections between the mountains and the sea. Now, Travis, you talk about dramatic change. A startling statistic here is that nearly 95% of Hawaii's dryland forest is no more, while 10% of the state's native plant species are extinct. So I have to ask, where do you see urban forestry in the role of natural preservation? I mean, it's an interesting role that urban forestry can play. In some ways, if we can propagate certain native plants and get them into urban landscaping and accepted, we can actually provide kind of this living collection and refugia for native species where their natural range you know, has been disturbed or, or destroyed or converted to some other land use. And in the similar ways that zoos are now much uh, like conservation organizations to protect and conserve wild animals that might be um, endangered or threatened in their natural range, urban landscapes can become a refuge and a place where native plants can be thrived and tended until we can restore their natural habitats and ranges. And Paul, your thoughts on the matter? I would also say if all goes well and we get enough of a critical mass of urban forests, then it's even conceivable, and the, the grand vision, I guess, is wildlife corridors that would connect natural forests via urban areas, maybe even Malka to Makai, as, as it was in the, in the past, you know, 100 years ago, let's say. And I think that because as kind of an environmentalist, you'd like to think that we can turn back the hands of time, but the reality is we can't. There are certain areas of this state or of Honolulu County that are so developed and will never be able to restore the Ahupua'a to a state you know, even remotely resembling what it once was. But by creating an urban forest, it's almost like a surrogate forest, in my view. We can sort of create the genetic reservoir as well as these, these wildlife corridors. What you're talking about here really sounds like the synthesis between urban development and urban forestry. I guess that's kind of the point of all this project, but I, I have to wonder, is it a realistic goal? I mean, it's a, it's a big goal, right? But it's something that I think if we address it from a lot of different perspectives, then I, I think it gains, as, as Paul said, that critical mass. There actually is in Honolulu um, City and County a requirement on the books that landscapers should be using native plants unless there's some real practical reason that they're not going to work. Unfortunately, that becomes a big loophole that most landscapers and developers are able to not use native plants. But the city and county sort of officially is behind the promotion of native plants. It's just that we need to make the awareness of their importance as well as the ability to propagate, to plant them, to tend them, and get them to thrive. You know, that awareness and that knowledge needs to increase so that there's both a demand and a supply, as well as an understanding that, yeah, we can actually make this happen if we work on it. Now, paint a picture here. What does that sort of symbiotic urban forestry in urban Honolulu, in urban Hawaii, look like? Well, I think on an individual level, um, and, and to, going back to your point about, you know, is this a realistic goal? It's definitely an ambitious goal, but the actions of each individual can and do make a difference. So I think on an individual level, if people were able to know which plants they could grow relatively easily in their area where they are, and they started to do so, that could make a huge difference. If just 20%, say, of the population started doing that, or even 10%, that would already be a huge step up from where we are now. Yeah, and if I could add to that, I think there's a couple things from my end. One is helping to create a sense of place where people are. So rather than just having a place that's, you know, my yard or, or, you know, my neighborhood and I want it to kind of look like this, 
people kind of connect with what is this place and, you know, what's its own natural history and what would have been here naturally and how do we create that kind of sense of a place so that we're connected to it, a part of it, and not just recreating something that we like to look at. So I think that could be a big part of increasing the value and the meaning of planting natives as well. The other part is, you know, as Paul said, really trying to provide a variety of ecosystem services and recognizing the importance of native plants in being able to do that. And so that we think about landscaping as more than just kind of, you know, keeping things a little bit cool and looking nice, that there are really other important values and purposes of urban forests. And so it kind of puts a little bit more, you know, thought into what we choose and how we plant it and maintain it, how much should be there, and almost a little bit more of the responsibility, you know, that this is an important choice that we are making. It's not just one, again, that's really more about aesthetics or making it seem nice outside, but rather one that, you know, these choices really matter in other important ways. And so that's kind of a sense of awareness and responsibility that it would be really nice to cultivate with a project like this. That was the Conversations, Harrison Patino, uh, speaking with uh, Paul Arenaga and Travis Idle of the Hawaii Forest Institute about their project, Go Native, Growing a Native Hawaiian Urban Forest. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, following health guidelines, offering takeout daily at its restaurants and bars in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. RubyTuesdayHawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, we speak with novelist, playwright, and actor Ayad Akhtar. His play Disgraced won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2013. He grew up in the Midwest, the son of Pakistani immigrants. His new novel, Homeland Elegies, draws on elements of his own life and explores the experience of Muslim Americans in the post-9-11 world. Join us. Starting this afternoon at 3, following On Point. That winds it up for today. Tomorrow we hear more about the rental assistance program announced by the governor last week. What's your housing story? Are you having trouble making rent? Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. Tweet us or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. You can find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Join us.